If you're looking to sell your private company's stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than $4 billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com equity. Hello, and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture-focused podcast. I'm TechCrunch reporter Kate Clark, and I'm joined by my co-host, free agent Alex Wilhelm. How's it going, Alex? Uh, it's going very, very good. I'm also happy to report that my free agency, such as it was, is uh, coming to a rapid conclusion. Uh, I have a job. Yeah, you got a job. Who hired you? Uh, I think it was actually uh, TechCrunch.com. So, ha, ha, oh, ha. Damn. joke is... Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm coming back. Uh, I used to work at TC. I didn't for a while. Somehow I never actually left because we did this show for years, uh, but now I'm officially going to be back. So is, how long were you at TechCrunch the first time? And then how long have you been gone? I was there for two and a half years. And then I was gone for three and a half, maybe four years, I think somewhere in there. And then I'll be back starting uh, Monday the 9th. And hopefully I'll never leave ever, ever, ever. So this is what's known as the TC boomerang, which means you you leave TechCrunch and you miss it so much that you end up coming back a few years later. Uh, some people have done this multiple times. Mm-hmm. In fact, um, Daryl um, Etherington, uh, f- uh, formerly of TC, also of TC, also formerly of TC, also of TC yet again, uh, <laughs> sent me a DM and I was like, yeah, baby, we just can't stay away. So. <laughs> Well, I'm glad to have you back. Um, anyone listening, you can probably assume that means there won't be any changes to the show. Uh, I know some people were a little bit worried when Alex said he was leaving Crunchbase, what was going to happen to Equity. So everything is still intact and we are super stoked to welcome him permanently back to TC. Yeah. Uh, only one tiny thing about that that I'll throw in is that I am going to be writing. Um, I'll be writing for both the main site and Extra Crunch. Uh, so if you are an EC, EC subscriber, uh, that's coming your way. So get excited. I haven't actually been on the kind of like fancy backend yet, so I haven't poked around, but really excited to get started. But enough about that, Kate. Let's talk about the venture world. Um, starting off with something that I'm actually pretty curious about, which is this Harlem Capital uh, new VC fund. Yeah, so Harlem Capital, it's been around for a while as an angel syndicate, but they just closed on their first ever venture capital fund. So they raised $40 million from limited partners, um, well above their initial target of $25 million, and they have... A diversity mandate, meaning that they are pretty much exclusively investing in entrepreneur, on, in minority entrepreneurs and female founders. Um, they're looking to do bets about 250k to 1 million and uh, participating or leading deals in kind of all sorts of companies because they have sort of a diversity focus. They will do um, most industries, though they did specifically say they won't be doing any crypto investing. Um, and yeah, kind of across across the U.S. I think this is really, really exciting. It's really good to see it oversubscribed. $40 million is enough money to do a lot of work. And I think if my memory serves, it's more money than Backstage uh, itself ever raised in a single fund. So it's more money than we've seen before going to more diverse founders, which is very, very exciting. To be clear, I don't mean to compare the two in some sort of competitive sense. I just mean it's good to see more capital in general, flowing to more diverse people over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes me happy to see it. The, yeah, they had raised, uh, or they had set out to raise 36 million, I think. They did not actually raise the 36 million, but certainly like was a lofty goal. So it's great to see this um, this firm exceed 40 million. They actually hit 40.3 in their final close. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, dif- it's difficult to really track like there's not a lot of great data on how many funds with the diversity mandate exists so i i mean i know this is definitely one of the larger ones oftentimes 
diversity focused funds are very small nano funds um and oftentimes they are focused on women and there there actually aren't that many that are looking at minority entrepreneurs as a whole and not just investing in female founders i'm sure you've noticed that there have been a number of female founded focused vc funds crop up in the last year or two which is amazing but you know there's there's a there is a major wealth and race gap in venture capital and we need tons and tons of venture funds like this one to as as the uh, founder of Harlem Capital said in my story to get anywhere close to parity. Yeah, in fact, when we talk about Europe in a little bit, uh, we have a data point about how much money in the European venture scene goes to uh, black male founders in the in the region slash area, and it's a vanishingly small number, and that gets kind of swallowed up in the whole like you know men raise X, women raise Y. Um, so it's good to look at things inter uh, intersection. Yeah, and anyways. Sorry, let me just clarify one thing. I said wealth and race gap, but I mean gender and race gap. So just editing myself in real time. Uh, that is why the show is so much fun. Um, in their portfolio, Antflow, Jobble, and Wagmo. Uh, Wagmo does pet wellness, which is pretty cool. Also, no. I like that it's so close to Waymo. No, pet oh, wellness don't... is not cool. Oh, it's not cool. Is it? Why? I think it is. I don't think it's cool. All right. Well, let me tell you why I think it's cool. Because my small dog hurt himself, and I had to take him to emergency vet care. And so no, now that no, I have no. that... Medical wellness is cool, but I think pet wellness is like pet mental health. <laughs> Sorry, if it's about pet mental health, I take it all back. Uh, anyways, we're excited to see this kind of go out into the market. Um, lots more fun still being announced even this late in the game. Yeah. Uh, but let's talk about a massive new fundraise. Um, Kate, do you remember when Mike Cagney left SoFi back in 2017? Is that still a data point on your radar? Oh, yeah, I remember. Yeah, so I thought we were to kind of heard the end of him. And as it turns out, we really hadn't. And he's working on a company that has raised a bajillion dollars. It's called Figure. And it does loan origination, securitization, and some blockchain work, I think is a reasonable summary of it. And the news out recently is that they're in the process of raising another $100 million. They had raised about $120 million before, according to Connie at TC, mm-hmm. and had uh, picked up a kind of a large um, credit facility the reason why this was a bit surprising to me is that Mike Cagney was kind of booted from SoFi for bad behavior back a couple of years ago. So I'm surprised to see him raising this much from so many people so soon. And that was my first reaction to this. I'm curious what yours was. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think they've raised capital in the past, and that's certainly what my reaction was when Figure, his his new company, raised capital before. I think this time I was not even remotely surprised. But just do a quick Google search. Um, I just did just now. And September 12th, 2017 was when the New York Times published a story titled, It Was a Frat House Inside the Sex Scandal That Toppled SoFi's CEO. So this was a very, very grand scandal that erupted at his former company. And yes, he was able to immediately raise capital for his new business. And there have been many VCs I've spoken to who are very much defensive of him and, you know, think he deserves a second chance or think that the whole thing was blown out of proportion or that journalists just made it into a bigger scandal than it should have been. Um, you know, XYZ goes on. But I'm not surprised by this round. Um, you know, it's a big one. I'm, and it's very close to their last one, but that's just kind of the state of venture capital these days anyhow. So yeah, I don't know. Well, just to keep in mind, we we're pulling all this from an SEC filing and yeah. the SEC filing notes that he has raised 58.8 million of 103 million targets. So this is not done. There's still money that needs to go in. Um, but uh, prior investors include uh, RPM Ventures, DSD Global, Ribbit Capital, DCM, DCG, Nimble Ventures, and Morgan Creek. But going back to the article you were citing there from the Times, 
Um, there were, quote, claims of sexual harassment, inappropriate relationships with SoFi employees, and Mr. Cagney may have been overaggressive in expanding SoFi's business, skirting risk and compliance controls. Um, but apparently that's not enough to really warrant, um, I don't know, banishment for any period Yeah, of time. I mean, you look at his list of, of investors. I mean, you just named them. Obviously, some of these, DSC Global and Ribbit Capital in particular is actually a very top fintech fund. But like, I mean, I'm not sure who Nimble Ventures is. I don't know who Morgan Creek Ventures is. Like, I guess I'm trying to say maybe some of the more institutional top VCs that you think of on a regular basis did steer away from doing this round. But you know what? I think... This, this comes up frequently. There are a number of men who are ousted and then who built new companies. Travis Kalanick is an example. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, Mike Cagney is an example. Um, and even like Parker Conrad, who had his own scandal, went on to you know create another business that was has been very successful amongst VCs. I think that they look for an opportunity to get a big return. And some VCs don't necessarily care that much about the individual who's yeah. at the company as long as they'll get them that return. Yep. Um, one little anecdote about this. Uh, I think this was in my last couple of days at, at Crunchbase. I got an email from a PR firm. I forget which one. And I don't have access to this email address. So I can't fact check my anecdote or get any more details about it. But I was emailed <laughs> and asked by a PR firm about Mike Cagney. And like, what do you think about him? So I, I replied something to the effect of, oh, this guy. And then I linked to one of the various stories about his misdeeds at SoFi. And then I didn't hear from them again. Is that something that happens to you regularly? Like you get PR firms asking for diligence? Because I've had that happen to me and it's quite bizarre in my opinion. I think they should do their own diligence and coming to us and asking our opinions just feels a little bit weird. I I think what they're doing isn't diligence per se, but instead they're trying to figure out where we stand. Because if I had said, oh, I don't know nothing about Mike Cagney. What an interesting man. Let's get on the phone. They would probably want to set that impression. But if my first impression is, oh, the guy who did these you know, was accused yeah. of doing these very bad things. I'm off the list, which is fine. I don't need to be on their their press list. But um, it struck me as, as, as indicative of his liabilities. They wouldn't do that if he didn't have that stuff in the background. Yeah, that's a good point. I I had one recently, and it was it was a venture capital fund that I'll say is a pretty middle middle ground fund that I didn't have anything really to say about either direction. And they were just like, "Tell us what you think." They had they kept emailing me about it, and I was like, "I don't I don't know. I don't care if you represent them." So I don't think I was helpful, but it was interesting to me that that was sort of part of their strategy was to reach out to our reporters and just be like, oh, well, do you like this fund or do you not like this fund? The only time I think this happens and I'm completely okay with it is when I, I've known the PR person for a long time. Right. And they're like, hey, can we talk about so-and-so or such and totally. such? And the answer is always yes, because totally. if, you know, if we have a personal relationship, totally fine. But um, kind of doing some, uh, I don't know, digging to see if I knew the bad stuff struck me as a little bit strange because it was only two years ago. It wasn't like this is 20 years ago history. This is stuff that's still fresh. Right. I mean, everyone remembers. It was like basically yesterday. I, I, yeah, everyone pretty much who's in, in tech now was there two years ago when that whole thing happened. Yeah. Well, anyways, uh, they've raised 58.8. They're shooting for 103. They're probably going to raise it. They'll have raised over 200 million easy in uh, equity capital when this is over with. And um, going to the product, just for the sake of completeness, um, they have been working on providing, uh, I think it's essentially liquidity to people who own houses and are no longer working to some capacity. They're also targeting um, student loan market, which, of course, SoFi was very much involved with. The blockchain component to, to this is... Interesting, according to TC, the blockchain itself is called Provenance and the native token is called Hash, if you're into that sort of thing. Um, I think we can move on. I mean, this will either become very, very big and and blockchain will have a success or it won't. and, And it won't, is my read. 
Hey everyone, don't forget, this episode is brought to you by SharesPost. So moving on, um, we want to talk about Europe. Uh, there was a really great story this week in Forbes about U.S. VAC activity in Europe, and I believe this was attached to their European Midas list, which is their ranking of the best, or you know, which is a ranking of the best investors. Um, so Alex Conrad wrote about how top American venture capital funds are increasingly investing across Europe. Now this is something I've been looking at, and actually, he I uh, he scooped me because I was thinking of writing a similar story, um, and he he did a great job. But it, it, there has been a lot of activity from the likes of Sequoia, Benchmark, Excel in London and in countries across Europe, um, more than we've seen in the past, and even at the seed stage. Um, Alex, you've written down a bunch of great data um, or good metrics here, so um, please please share some of those. So the Atomico report that also came out kind of in conjunction with what uh, Conrad put together. Conrad's story, by the way, is kind of a must read. It's on Forbes.com. Go check it out. Uh, picking out some favorite data points. Um, inside of Europe, there are seven countries uh, attracting a billion dollars or more in venture capital. That level of investment has led to there being 14 new unicorns so far in Europe this year, uh, from 85 last year to 99 this year. Those unicorns come from 20 countries. With the caveat that the way that was calculated by Atomico seems to allow for companies that have left, they cited Zendesk as a uh, a Danish unicorn. Of course, I think Zendesk is currently based in yeah, SF, true. but it was started in Copenhagen. Um, I'm, I'm kind of a I'm vaguely biased towards Denmark. My mom's half Danish. It's a cool country, but I don't think they should really count Zendesk, but they do. So some wiggle room in there. Um, they went on to say that uh, 29 different uh, EU cities have attracted $100 million or more apiece in 2019, so we're seeing kind of this mm-hmm. diffusion of capital into you know more than two dozen cities, um, and then you know I, I was just flipping through all the data points, and one thing that I found that was you know compelling to me uh, was that 902 million dollars in 2018 were invested in uh, so 902 million dollars of pension funds were put into venture capital funds, uh, European venture capital funds last year. So people are really kind of betting uh, their future pension outcomes on venture capital returns, which may sound risky, but also you're kind of betting your future on on the future. So that was pretty Mm -hmm. good. And then we get to the gender diversity stuff. Yeah. Which, uh, I I don't know. I was hoping for more. It's pretty bad. I mean, I I just, I'm glad that you flagged it. I mean, it. so so as you've written here, um, let's see, I might say this wrong. Let's see, 92 of every $100. Okay, yes, $92 of every $100 went to all male teams. Um, and very, very little went to all women teams, as is also the case in the US. Um, and then some capital to mixed gender. So 92% of VC dollars in Europe, Alex, correct me if I'm wrong, went to all male founding teams. Yeah, that's my read. So to kind of put this in, in sharper perspective, 7.2% of capital of venture capital in Europe in 2014 went to either all women founding teams or founding teams with both men and women. And that went all the way up to 8.4% in 2019. Woo, progress. 1.4% so in a half decade. Mm-hmm. They're, they have some serious work to do, as we do in the U.S., where our numbers are still terrible. I think we're still under 3% for VC dollars going into all female teams. Of course, with mixed gender teams, the numbers are much higher. And, you know, mixed uh, many startups that do have women are mixed gendered. But for the ones that are exclusively women, the numbers are very bad. So I'm not surprised to see numbers also bad in Europe, but it's disappointing. I mean, it, it would be great to see an entire entirely different environment over there where there was yep. much less of a gap of a gender gap in venture capital. Alas, you know, it's much, much more similar. Not, yeah, not the case. I, I just, I think as a, as an American, 
for lack of, I mean, this is who I am. I, I always presume the European Union is slightly more enlightened than us in some capacity um, socially, and it doesn't seem to be really the case here. Uh, some more data points. Uh, black founders were, uh, quote, black founders made up only 1% of our more than 1,200 founder respondents. Um, they also have found, unsurprisingly, that um, people who start companies tend to be people who are economically secure, which is not a huge surprise, same here in America. And also they had some data points on uh, women VCs spending more time going to uh, diverse events over male VCs. So essentially women are carrying uh, the, the you know, progress towards a more diverse European venture capital scene themselves. Men can do more. And you know, the, the flip side of this is that the EU VC scene is super active. Things are looking pretty hot. And one data point that I thought was kind of critical to discuss is that if you look at a series A round in the EU versus uh, the United States, I'll just read the quote to make this simpler to avoid butchering this case. So here's, here's what they said, or here's what actually I think Conrad said. On average, over the past year, $1 worth of equity in a European startup in a series A funding round would have cost $1.60 in the US for a comparable share. So what that means is you're getting a discount if you invest in Europe, provided you pick companies of similar quality. And I think that's going to be an attractive proposition for VCs who are annoyed at the price points that they're paying for seed mm-hmm. and early stage deals here in America. Yeah. That's my take. Yeah. I, I liked that he highlighted that. And I think that's really interesting to see the hard numbers as far uh, and to really understand what the discount is overseas. I mean, of course, a part of the reason why there are so many amazing opportunities in, in um, markets across the U.S. like Utah or Austin or Atlanta is because there are such massive discounts for these companies that are great. And many of them bootstrapped for years, um, you know, struggle to raise VC and then aren't able to. And because of that, have very lean businesses. Um, you know, I don't know what the case is necessarily in Europe, but it is interesting to see how much of a discount there is. And I think... When you have Benchmark and Sequoia sending partners overseas to Europe to sort of expand their deal uh, deal flow over there, you know, you're going to see other VCs follow in their footsteps. Um, so I have a feeling that 2020 will be a big year for tech across Europe, not just in London, which is a big hub, but in Paris and in, you know, smaller markets like you mentioned, Denmark, Amsterdam, like these are all Stockholm. These are all tech hubs in themselves as already and I think have so much opportunity to grow larger. Yeah. And then when I started seeing numbers from this on Twitter, my first thought was Adyen must be driving a lot of this. And Conrad wrote in Forbes that, you know, public offerings from Adyen and Spotify have helped catalyze investments. It's it's evidence that Europe uh, not just can produce, you know, $1 billion companies and outcomes, but multi-billion dollar companies and outcomes. Uh, And if you haven't heard of Adyen, A-D-Y-E-N, it's just evidence about how here in America, we don't really have enough of an eye on the larger and now public. Um, European companies and tech that are doing the kind of big and cool things. Um, it's probably a bit of uh, just a lack of us looking around. I mean, remember how we missed the kind of the rise of China VC, um, or at least I did. I was about a year behind of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we're pretty heads down in the bubble we live in ourselves, the Silicon Valley or New York. And I think not only is there going to be the, there is this discount, but the companies that are built overseas in, in Europe or um, in other markets, international markets, often have um, a global perspective from day one. They have they have a vision of expanding internationally versus companies in San Francisco. Oftentimes, um, you know, Bay Area is their market and is their market for a very long time, maybe forever. Maybe they, you know, maybe that doesn't work. But these companies are, you know, absolutely planning overseas launches and building products for the international customer. And that uh, that means a very big scale. And of course, VCs love any company that could have a scale 
that could be of global scale. There's more TAM outside the U.S. than inside the U.S., shockingly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So um, before we go, a really, uh, well, some IPO updates. It's been quiet on the IPO front. I don't know if anyone heard of the WeWork collapse, but that certainly didn't help uh, everyone who wanted to go public. But uh, so yesterday, actually, no, earlier this week, I should say, uh, both Bill.com and Sprout Social, two software companies that are in the process of going public in the U.S., both set their IPO price ranges at $16 to $18 a share. And I thought it was worth taking a minute just kind of talk about them really, mm-hmm. really briefly. Keep in mind that when WeWork did fall apart, everyone freaked out and started to question, you know, their cash burn and unprofitability and paths to profitability and, you know, what does this mean? So I'm kind of reading these two debuts as a, a bit of a temperature or heat check of the software IPO market. Um, of course, every company is distinct and different, so we don't want to read too much into this, um, but the companies are interesting. And here are some really quick numbers. At their highest share, highest proposed share price, 18 per share, Sprout Social is worth about $890 million, including its underwriters option. Uh, Bill.com is worth a, a larger $1.25 billion. Unsurprisingly, Bill.com is growing. It was up 57% in Q3 compared to the year ago period with $35.2 million in revenue. Sprout Social grew just under 30% year over year in Q3 to 26.4 million in revenue. Each company lost between, I think it's about five and 6 million in Q3, so they're not profitable. Um, and then a final distinction is that, you know, Sprout Social has about 12, 13 million in cash at the end of Q3. Uh, Bill.com at 157.6 million in cash, which is a ludicrous amount of money for a company of its size, but I looked up the numbers and Sprout Social has raised about 111, 112, whereas Bill.com had raised $347.1 million, which is just a lot of money. So I suppose actually Sprout Social was more efficient with its cash that it raised, but they should be really fun IPOs. Um, I'm kind of curious to see how much of revenue multiple premium that Bill.com will get given mm-hmm. its uh, sharper growth rate. But um it's going to be fun, Kate. You know how much I love IPOs. I know. So. And there, we've had a dry spell. Do you remember? I was just thinking about this. Like there was a phase, what was it, March, where there was a new IPO filing, like I think twice a week. And it was just insane. It was like all you could do every day. All we had time to do was to unpack IPO filings. And this lasted for months. Yeah, it was great. I miss it. It was fun. I mean, it was not. It wasn't great. It, it, it was fun for a while. I, I've been enjoying the break, although now it feels like it's been forever. Since we've covered an IPO. What was the last IPO we covered? Peloton? Yeah. Well, WeWork, you know, the attempted IPO. But I mean, we finally saw a lot of these really big names get out or try to go out. And then I think there was this this kind of like, I don't know, wait and see moment. You don't see as many IPOs in Q4. Um, the stock market's been a little choppy. There's trade tensions. People are worried about, yeah, I don't know, what kind of multiple they're going to get. Slack got repriced. Mm-hmm. Smiles Red Club kind of shit the bed uh, when it went out. Um, so I, I, I'm not super surprised but i think having these two ipos coming up hopefully in the next couple of weeks would may jumpstart things if they do well kate we could see a deluge of of filings and maybe a much more active q1 these these ipos are expected do you think before before the new year i'm hesitant to to say that i i did some snooping around before the show and i couldn't find any source that would give us a range on on when they might actually uh go on their roadshow i know that you can watch the bill.com roadshow online now so we're, we're in the process but i don't have any firm numbers i would love to see them before the calendar year closes but if it was the first couple weeks of january i wouldn't yeah. be shocked at this point i mean like why why ruin your christmas with a bad ipo 
Well, or give yourself an enormous present with a good IPO. No, because IPO is so stressful no matter what for the company. Yeah, but I mean, imagine if you could like give yourself $50 million or that's, not. That's, that is a fair point. That is a fair How point. much stress would you be willing to take? I don't know. Before we walk away, two quick kind of programming notes. One is that we just got a chart of our Spotify downloads and there's a hell of a lot of you over there. So thanks for that. If you're listening to this somewhere else and prefer Spotify, you can find equity on Spotify. We're also on everything else, but that's just kind of a neat little thing. Um, and looking ahead, we have something special for you next week. Kate, what did you go do? Yeah, so I'm heading to Europe on Thursday um, for TechCrunch Berlin, which is our annual conference in Europe. Um, and so we've already recorded next week's episode. I sat down with the head of primary markets of the London Stock Exchange, and we talked about direct listings, which is something that we've discussed here and there on equity this year. And coupled with all of the news coming out of Europe, I think it's going to be a really great and timely episode. So please tune in for that one and learn um, all there is to know about direct listings. Yeah, I mean, keep in mind, Airbnb is supposed to pursue one of the largest direct listings we've ever seen mm -hmm. in, like, I don't know, less than six months' time. So if you want to be prepared and sound cool at all the dinner parties, listen to that. Precisely. In the meantime, uh, hang out, and we'll see you then. Bye. You can find us on Twitter at Alex and at Kate Clark Tweets, or you can email us at equitypod at techcrunch.com. And we are now on YouTube. Watch the full episode on the TechCrunch YouTube page. And if you really want to support the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes. And you can also subscribe to our podcast on Spotify and all the other places where you get podcasts. And a big thank you to our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet. And we will see you all right here next week.